Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My name is Sabina Brennan and my guest this week is lead singer with Something Happens and much loved broadcaster Tom Dunn. I wanted to talk to Tom about surviving serious heart surgery and facing his own mortality when he learned that his heart murmur had morphed into a potential killer. But you'll have to wait until next week for that part of our conversation because today's episode is about surviving the music industry and how Something Happens continue to thrive 35 years after first forming back in 1984. Stealing from Something Happens, take a parachute and jump right into this episode and enjoy Tom's dulcet tones, his humour and his wisdom. Tom, thank you so much uh, for joining me. I actually am really excited to talk to you. Um, And I was chatting to my son the other day, actually, and I said, oh, do you know who I have coming up on the show? And he went, oh, my God. He said, I saw him in uh, Trinity. I think was it a Trinity Ball, probably maybe around 2011. Would that make sense? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. It was outdoors. Yeah. I I do remember it because it was in the square of Trinity College and we played about two in the morning. Yeah. Um, I'm one of those people who looks around me, you know, so I was looking up at the stars and going, wow, we're in the square of Trinity College, 1603. This place was built. (laughs) My life. I'm on a stage singing to these people. And so lovely to to still kind of get that. Oh, this is a moment. Do you know, because I would imagine, you know, a lot of people performing and gigging and constantly forget that bit that it's. So that's really lovely to hear. Um, Yeah, because he actually... (laughs) He says, I remember that, you know, remember, I actually rang you and played. (laughs) We probably don't remember because it was two o'clock in the morning. (laughs) I remember like yesterday. Gosh, really? So your memory's good. Yeah, it's funny. JJ72 played as well, you know, and they were kind of the flavour of the month, you know. Right. But people were walking away as they were on stage, you know, and our drummer, Eamon, looked at me and said, they've no hits. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, it was kind of like we have parity <laughs> when you know that and you know once to hear the opening bars people oh, just start to, you know, do you know what i have to relief. thank you and all of something happens for parachute actually for this morning it got me out of a real fog i woke up this morning and i just I normally and actually I advise people in my talks and books, you know, the first thing that you do when you open your eyes should be to smile. It really has just such great health benefits and, you know, it makes you feel good and it releases. Yeah. And and so I do it and I smile a lot because it really does. You know, it's a kind of fake it till you make it sort of thing. It really does. And you feel good. But I just woke up this morning feeling I didn't sleep very well. And I know why I broke all my own rules. I kind of ate a bit, you know picked on things there was biscuits in the house which there never is and I ate a few and had a couple of G&Ts and I kind of was annoyed with myself when I woke up I kind of went oh why did you do that you know that life is much better when you don't we had a very similar start to the morning then did you <laughs> yeah we, we did a don't drink on a school night yeah and last night we had um a bottle of cava right of cava. yeah yeah I, I woke up this morning going yeah, why did why did I do one that? Rule, one yeah, rule, yeah, yeah. It. I was beating myself up and I actually was kind of 
tempted to hang on to the bed, which I normally don't do. I kind of jump out of it. And then somebody challenged me, the Alzheimer's Society. I do a lot of work kind of, you know, with them and I'm on certain advocacy committees with them. But one of their staff members challenged me today. This week they're raising funds and they're doing a jumping jack challenge. So it's jump for Jack Charlton. Just oh, to, yeah. I think. So you have to do jumping jacks, you know. So I was challenged and I said, well, I'll, I'll have to do that. <laughs> uh, um, and I said, well, I'd love a bit of music with it, you know, to kind of thinking. And then I went, I know I'm going to play parachute. Ah, brilliant. <laughs> and I played it before I was dressed and, you know, kind of doing it. And actually, I just started to dance around the bedroom. It's just one of those songs that you can't yeah. not dance to. It just yeah. amazing. And within that second, you know, again, it's a piece of advice. This I say as a stress buster, you know, do something fun. It yeah. just switches it all up. And I just went with it this morning. And if anyone had seen me in my PJs <laughs> dancing around the bedroom to parachute and jump. And it's just so right. I really do want to say thank you. You know, it just flipped me up. Then I got into my gear and I did my jumping jacks. Very good. It's just an incredible song. Take a parachute and jump. You can't stay here forever. When everyone else is gone. And all along I'm saying that clever. If the wind don't catch you, I will, I will. If the wind's not there, I'm here. I'd love you to tell us the story of how it happened. Yeah. How it came about. And what it actually means, and perhaps what some people think it means. <laughs> right. Um, I think you know what I'm getting at there. Yes. Uh, yeah, I didn't mean that. I can safely say. <laughs> um, I suppose we see it as a bit of a gift at this stage because it's, you know, it's just made life an awful lot easier since it arrived. But it came in the middle of a time when we were under, it's funny, from the moment we signed our record contract, it seemed Virgin wanted to drop us. It just, the honeymoon period must last about half an hour. Oh, God. And then... Uh, and then we'd given up our jobs, you know, and suddenly Virgin were kind of hemming and hawing and didn't want to release the first album when it was finished and uh, asked us to put out a mini live album and then put out the album, recorded some extracts, put out the album. But again, we're kind of saying can't guarantee it'll be a second album. And then uh, Ronnie Gurr, the A&R man, kind of said, look, you know, no one's waiting to hear your new album. You know, no one cares, but, you know, so unless you write some good songs, I remember. How did that feel for someone awful. to say that? Oh, I can just imagine. I was still living at my parents, you know, right. and I took that phone call on the, the bottom of the stairs on the old phone in the hall on one yeah. of those stands with the, with the phone book on one side, you know, and the seat on the other. Yeah, I remember spending again, hours sitting on the bottom step of the stairs talking to people. Yeah. But the A&R man going through me for a shortcut. And so um, we went in writing and we had one or two good songs straight away. But we were working with a lot of producers and one producer, Tony Berg, who's a legend, a legend. He, he um, was head of Geffen Records at one point. He loved us. And we were over in L.A. with him and, and he loved us. But he was having a little go at me and he was saying, you know, Tom, uh, that song Beach, it's no, never, never a mention of beach in it, you know, and yet it's called Beach. You know, that's not really great chorus writing, is it? <laughs> that's a good point, Tony, you know. And the little one, Forget Georgia, Tom, you know, no mention of Forget Georgia and that. But there is a beach in it, Tom. Just to confuse people. <laughs> right. I'm going, yes, Tony. Yes. You know, I feel like I'm being singled out by the headmaster. You know, I'm the one getting all the comments. Right. I'll try harder. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Hold the moon, Tom. There's a great song from the word go. Hold the moon. You know what it's about, you know. So I came down. I started writing down titles like it was going ahead of style. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, parachute, the name went through my head. And I think that's good. I like that. So I put that aside. But then... Um, we just got an advance and Ray had bought a piano and I bought a four track recorder. So I'd never had a recorder before. And I was now able to do backing vocals and we had no backing vocals. Nobody else could sing. Ah. So I was thinking we can write it. We can write a backing vocal. So I wrote, take a parachute, that line as a backing vocal. And I thought I like this. So I ran into where Ray had the piano at this stage about four weeks. And I said, have you, have you learned anything? Is there anything? <laughs> and he played the music of parachute to me. Wow. And I recorded it and I went home and all I was thinking about was I can use the backing vocal that I have now. So I wrote that take a parachute line and then I wrote the verse and then I wrote the chorus. 
to fit in with the backing vocal, right? I can't exaggerate how much this is a backing vocal first and a song second. And I liked that. Oh, this is good. This is yeah. good. So we went into rehearsal and we'd recorded four songs in a proper studio. And now I had this four track version of Parachute. So I was playing it. All I could say is, lads, we have a song with backing vocals. At last, what do you think about this? So I was playing to see how they'd react to the backing vocals. And uh, Ray and, and Damon both kind of said, that's really good. <laughs> Surprising. <laughs> yeah. I, hadn't, I hadn't really heard the song. Right. Because you were I listening to the... You this detail. Yeah, you were looking yeah. at the trees and not the yeah. forest sort of thing. Just yeah, yeah, exactly. So then it was added to the demo tape and it was sent off to Virgin and it was instant. What's the fifth one? What's that one about? So uh, slightly divisive. One man in Virgin didn't want it on the album because he reckoned it was poppy. And we were more of a rock band. Yeah. And, and he was adamant about that. And he was my R.A. Norman's boss. So wow. it was, it was quite, quite the argument. But then we did it in a, an RTE show on the radio for Spanish radio. And we just played it once. And then about four weeks later, we played this gig called Seven Bands on the Up. And the minute we started the intro, they all started singing it. And it hadn't been released. <laughs> so, wow. so they'd learned it from hearing it on that radio broadcast. Four weeks for so I, I remember looking at each other on stage and saying, Wow, this yeah. is like something you read about. This is fantastic. Yeah, it's an earworm. <laughs> it's been in my head for the last couple of days because I've been researching. And actually, it was really quite nice. I was looking at videos of you with your long hair and, and, oh. and how times have changed as well. Actually, a lot of my listeners to this podcast are very young, they're kind of between 24 and 34. And I think a lot of them don't realize how simplistic our videos are. <laughs> Where, like, it was like, uh, what was that? Oh gosh, MTV. No, it was. It was the Irish yeah. one with poor man. Oh, MTUSA. MTUSA. Yeah, with Vincent yeah. Handley. Like, I mean, that was just so exciting to see videos and stuff that was just all new. People don't realize it's just so much a part of life now. But I was watching one of yours, and I don't know whether it was, and it might have been for Hello, Hello. But people are throwing yeah. balls at you, and you can yes. see you flinching. That was a proper video. <laughs> <laughs> that was recorded in the Salford Boys Club, which is kind of where the Smiths are from. Ah, oh, um, right. Oh. Marcy might have been a member of the Salford Boys Club. Oh, there Club you go. Point, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is one of our few proper videos. There's oh, no video. Yeah. Gosh, no. well, there's lots of them. You can find lots of you performing it and performing it 30th anniversary yeah. on top of the pops. I have to say the voice is still just absolutely spot on. Yeah, it's holding up. Do you sing a lot? No. No. No, I don't. I, I think being on the radio maybe helps. Right. But when we go to, God, I haven't done a gig now in a year and a half. This yeah. has never happened before. But when we go to do gigs, I find the first rehearsal is very difficult. And then by the second rehearsal and by the gig, it's it's back. You know, it's yeah. back to a certain level and it's okay. But no, I don't sing at home. Right. Okay. And I've just started guitar lessons, would you believe? Oh, cool. No, that's good. That's really good. No, and I, I will talk to you actually about that now that you bring it up, the not gigging, because my other son, my youngest son, he's a musician. He's actually a classical saxophonist, but he also sings. Obviously, he can't do the okay. two at the same time. Yeah. But he taught himself how to sing, actually, as a teen and has an amazing voice. Ended up singing for Anuna and Travelling the World. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, like, you know, he has a really good instrument and he's a real musician. Do yeah. you know what I mean, other than a singer and he's studied composition etc but he just really really missing doing gigs performing I mean when that's in your soul it's yeah. part of who you are I find it the most uh, for your mental health the best thing you can do I'm on a different level for about four weeks after a gig I just feel really calm and rooted and at ease after a gig right yeah it's sensational because performing and doing it singing in particular to be honest you, you sing with the balls of your feet. You sing with every muscle and fiber in your body. You put everything yeah. into it. And, and when you're singing songs you've written yourself, you're reliving those lyrics and where you were and what happened during the writing of those songs. You, you know, those things go through your mind. So you're giving everything. There's no space for other thoughts in your head. You're just, you're rooted. And that's about two hours. The gig's about two hours. And afterwards, yeah. you're just absolutely rooted. You just, you feel great. You feel mentally and physically really sound after it. 
really good. Do you know, I'm so glad you said that because I often try to explain to people about relaxation and particularly now during something like, you know, a lockdown where people are experiencing chronic stress. And that's really, yeah. you know, I mean, I come from the brain perspective and chronic stress really um, has a negative impact on your yeah. brain function, particularly your ability to remember and learn and concentrate. And relaxation obviously people are told you know you need to relax more you know and that's very vague and I kind of try to concretize mm -hmm. these things to kind of say and a lot of people ask me about meditation and mindfulness and yes there is a lot of evidence that says that those things work yeah. but not everyone can do that and an awful lot of people think that relaxation is sitting doing nothing for me and I suspect maybe for someone like you sitting doing nothing is a form of stress for me yeah I just don't Can't like do it, it. Yeah. I can't do it. And it actually sets me ruminating as well. And it can set me off into a spiral of yeah. um, navel gazing. And is, is this what it's all about? And, you mm. know, there's no point in going there. And I often said, and I actually said it in a talk that I gave yesterday, just find something that you love where you lose yourself because therein you find yourself, you find your joy and you are meditating. It is meditation. That's it. Yeah. And that, where it's something like I used the example yesterday, if you sing in a choir, yeah. if you're singing parts, you cannot think of anything else. Otherwise, you can't do it. It's total focus. It is total present mindedness. And for someone like me as well, I find that much easier than trying to do the controlled mindfulness. I also find lifting weights does the same because oh, yeah. if I don't lift it properly, I put my back out in the past. So I have to yeah. focus on where my body is and what I'm doing. I do sometimes forget to breathe, which I suppose is not really <laughs> mindfulness. But I do a bit of that as well. That's really, really interesting. I'm really, that's brilliant. I'm so glad I have that as a real life example. So essentially you're having two hours of Zen, Zen. meditation that, yeah. that really just brings you. Centered your... is the word I'd feel after just yeah, yeah. Um, not stressed at all, not worried about anything. And you remain in that state for days afterwards. Days. Wow. Yeah. I, and I get a sense too of feeling you're doing the right thing with your life. That, you know, yes. this is what I was supposed to do. This is it. No question. I'm doing what the best thing I can do right now is this thing. And, wow. you know, it's valued by people. We're good at it. And with these people who are doing it with me, that that's, you know, worth its weight in gold to me as well. And it just feels I'm absolutely in the right place at the right time. I love it. And how fortunate you are. And listeners will go insane with me saying this again, because I've said it time and again, but it's something I did when my kids were born. I had my kids when I was relatively young. I had them in my 20s. So my kids are that younger guy uh, turned 30 last month and the other one is 31. But I think when you have children, and I'll talk to you about that later, it is one of those epiphany moments. You know, you kind yeah, of start absolutely. to view life in a different way. And I was in my 20s and I worked in an office. And I had the kids and I kind of said, OK, I don't want this kind of future for my kids. I want to teach them to find something that they love and find a way to make a living doing it. And that's what I did. And one is a musician and one is a doctor. And right. they absolutely wow. um, yeah. they love it. Unfortunately, the musician can't be a musician at the moment, but he's strong. Actually, what he's doing at the moment is um, a sound design course. So he likes okay. to compose also. Yeah. So actually he's saying, well, look, I can't perform. I can't sit doing nothing. He has done some writing. He says he's turned into a grant writer. <laughs> he's writing grants to the Arts Council all the time and he's getting some of them. Oh, great. You know, and some nice work to do as well, you know, because he's passionate about Irish composers and about um, actually I hadn't intended to talk about this, but I'm interested on your views. So he sees himself as an Irish musician. He plays saxophone, generally classical saxophones, but lots of. He'll compose some work for himself and he's played works by contemporary Irish composers. And when he sings whatever he tend towards the music he likes, he'll sing that music and taught himself how to play the piano so he could wow. do it when he was a teen. But he has this thing where he'd say, if you ask any Irish person to name three Irish actors, three Irish writers, three Irish film stars, movie directors, actually most people could do it. But you ask them to name three Irish composers and most people would struggle. Now, mm. I'm not talking about writers or songwriters. Yeah composers as a distinct category and people can't no. and we have some amazing composers yeah. and uh, composers that have been recognized sort of internationally but not known here that sort of is one thing he says and the other thing that he thinks is related to that is that we have this narrow focus about Irish music as being 
traditional music, mm. Irish trad music, as if that's what Irish music is. And he would say, he's kind of has me of that mind too. You know, well, that's one genre of Irish music. It is folk music, but our music is always evolving mm. and we have to start honoring the people who are creating new yeah. music and supporting them because otherwise we're just stuck in the past. One doesn't negate the other. No, it evolves. Yeah. yeah, it, yeah. It evolves. I think composers are very, they're very in the background, you know, it, yeah. very often music and films or, or TV you don't really, it just blends in. I think it takes maybe a musician or somebody, you know, with a bit of a music lyric to actually spot and go, wow, the soundtrack is amazing. Or there's something really unusual going on here with the soundtrack. Um, I know when we're watching TV, I have to stop it now and again and tell Audrey, you know, do you not notice what's going on here? Yeah, yeah. I think most people are like that, you know. Well, I do. And it's funny. I kind of have a funny relationship with music. Music is, as you'll know, is just incredibly emotive. Yeah. Um, and, and I did always love music and I loved pop songs and all the rest. And then there came a point, I don't know when it was, I haven't quite explored that journey, but I am aware of it. There came a point where I didn't really want to listen to songs from my youth anymore. They just made me feel sad. Yeah. Um, they made me connect with the person who I thought I was going to be and all those imagined futures. And then there's a sense of connecting with, well, that didn't happen, you know, or I didn't go down that route or I'm a bit of a disappointment and it's just too hard for me to feel. Yeah. And so I would just not listen to the music. And there's a second thing. Um, also, there's always so much going on in my brain that having music playing around interferes with that. Yeah. My husband would be the reverse. He would always love to have music and he's always singing a song and, you know, he'd always have music on. And he very kindly realized that it was actually damaging me more to have a constant radio on than it was kind of giving him joy. So we don't have any radios or that sort of thing in the house. And whenever I go out and I come back in, there's music playing everywhere. The sun of speakers are on. But the interesting thing is one form of music that I bought when you used to buy CDs and when the kids were growing up and when I would put music on in the house, because I found it very calming for the kids as well was I always bought movie soundtracks yeah and I can never say his name and Enrio Morricone mission Morricone yeah yeah yeah, yeah I mean incredible music what a guy ah what an amazing amazing composer and so I would fill the house with that music yeah and that touched me emotionally but in a very different way and I often wonder actually the son who's the musician from when he was a toddler the music would play in the background because I had two boys and boys can just get wild you know they'll just start killing each other and sometimes I'd switch the music up and you could see but he responded from when he was a toddler you know the way you see parents and they'll have their kids doing a little jig you know oh look at them dance 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 and they do a jig no he was rolling on the ground and you know he'd be mid playing but he was really doing this just he was connecting through his whole body with yeah. that music in the background you know it was really lovely to see him and lovely to see that he has followed through and yeah it's and brilliant he, yeah it is and he says he sees music which is something that I don't know maybe you're nodding your head is that is yeah that no something? I don't see it uh, no I don't know but I certainly feel it. I wish I could see it. I can kind of see it in, in terms of where you put bits and pieces. I, I do have a mental image, almost like you're looking at a computer screen and I can see, you know, a bass drum going under it or bits of music coming in and out. He says he can see patterns. Really? He, he sees, yeah. Well, and no. he says he can see it. It's hard for me to understand because I can't yeah. do it. And I've talked to him about it because I think it's really interesting, even from a brain perspective, what's going on. But he said, and I suppose this is from, you know, I mean, he's an amazing saxophonist and he did a Bachelor of Music degree and then yeah. a Master's in Performance and Composition. So like Trinity, it was like was it? six. Uh, he did the music degree in DIT because you don't actually do performance in Trinity when you study music. Oh, okay, it's pedagogy. Right. Yeah, we had an engineer in Today FM, did what she was in Trinity. Sinead, so I thought maybe I might have known her, but... Trinity is pedagogy and he yeah, said, oh, I want to play. Very, yeah, <laughs> stuff she was doing seemed very theoretical. and Yeah, it's theoretical. It's purely yeah. theoretical. But his master's degree then is in performance and was just a new degree. He was actually the first person to graduate with it. So he did performance and composition. Yeah. But I have no idea. I've lost my train of thought in what I was going to say, but it, it really doesn't matter. I'm here to talk to you about you. But I always find the connections. That's what yeah. I love because it's a bit weird doing podcasts. You know, you talk to someone, you come in and you straight up have to talk about personal stuff often sure. as well. So I constantly just look for something that you connect yeah. on. But his 
really also amazing about Something Happens is that it's more than 30 years on now. It is, yeah. 1984, I think, is when we actually started. 84. So I can't do the maths there. It's a long time, though. Um, yeah, it's heading for 40 years, isn't it? Something it will like be 40 that. years in 2024. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I remember my dad used to say things like, Jesus, that film is about 30 years old, you know, and I'd go, God, how can you remember a film from 30 years ago? And here I am going, I went to my school reunion last year, my 40th, like, oh, it's just absolute madness. But what really interests me is that you're still together, you're yeah. still friends. And what you just said earlier there about performing in Trinity. Yeah you know, part of the joy was there with you. Mm. What's the secret to that? How do you think that happened? Did it just happen? Did you have to work at it? How come you're not like all those other bands who just yeah. fight and hate each other? Um, I think a lot of it was good fortune, to tell the truth, uh, because you can't be in a band, uh, and tour in particular, without having, you know, friction and deep discomfort uh, with the other members even just boredom with the other members or just seeing them so often you never want to see them again and they get under your skin and we'd loads of that. Um, but I think as it came to an end, as it was getting ever decreasing circles, we were all kind of moving sideways into other things. And I think we needed to do gigs because we were in debt. So we had to do gigs to, to pay off the debt. There was no, I remember Alan, our bass player tried to leave and I told him he, he couldn't afford to leave. <laughs> <laughs> will make no material difference if you leave because you're still going to have to do the gigs, right? right. Um, unless you want to pay off your share of the debt now, which I don't think you can. So, oh, um, so you have to stay, you know. And then the gigs were good. That was the thing. No matter the circumstance, the gigs were good. And then we did a kind of thing. I, I, I faced down our debtors. You know, and uh, I kind of said, look, in some cases, you've had a good run with us, you know, and you've made loads of money out of us. So maybe it might be an idea to overlook, you know, what we owe you at the moment. And they all agreed. They all said, you know, really? right. yeah, they said, you're right. You're right. We have a good run. You know, so the debt went from quite big to very manageable. And then we did a run of gigs. And then suddenly we were now sharing the money. We wow. Were, you know, because yeah. we we're doing these gigs and then getting 50 quid. And yeah. you have to drive into Galway. Or something you know it's nearly worse than doing it for nothing i, yeah, I know that sounds is. like a really really weird thing yeah but i do a lot of pro bono stuff and you kind of feel good about it but then yeah. someone gives you something like 50 quid and you kind of go hold on i spent eight hours prepping yeah. that <laughs> i know so that improved so now gigs were fun and there was some money in it so people were more than interested so we kind of coasted for about a decade with that and the tensions just evaporated and i think as maturity came into you and we all had kids I think our perspective changed and we all started seeing the band as this little thing that was very special to us. And uh, it was something you could take down off the, the shelf and play with every now and again. And I think there was an appreciation of each other as well. I think, I think you do these amazing gigs and the audience eating out of your hand and you know they're great performances. And there's this thing when you're on stage with people it's in a real band, which we are, where someone does something great or something on the guitar and you catch his eye and you just go, oh, that was beautiful. And we appreciate yeah. that with each other, you know, yeah. and now and again, I'll, I'll change vocal or something and you'll get a little nod. And they mean the yeah. world. They mean the world. Yeah. Because you, know, you respect these people. These, these are the yeah. people you want to impress first. You know, so, yeah. that's, so that slowly kind of came back. The reason you got into a band in the first place started to kind of come back and, and we just started to appreciate each other. Now, we haven't crossed the Rubicon yet, and that is writing new material. And I've mm. often joked that we'd need to go into therapy to do that. But I, I'm not really joking about that because that is the hardest of things to do because that's where you, you produce something from yourself and you're waiting for a nod or something from the others and it mightn't come. And it's, I don't think we have the confidence to do that at the moment. You know, Ray might do a riff. He might think it's great. I don't react at all, you know, and I can see he's gone, last riff I'm playing to you, <laughs> you know. So, you know, that oh, has, yeah, no, you got to get back there. I mean, I want I, I want to go back to the beginning of your career, but 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 the fact that you've just said that stop it now, just go do it. I mean, yeah. the thing about um, maybe just have a conversation. I'm not offering you therapy and advice here, but you <laughs> <Don't> do. <laughs> 
But the thing about that is you've put limitations on yourselves in terms of what you can create. Yeah. And the joy comes from that. And if you set the boundaries and say, guys, you know, the deal is I'm a firm believer that there's no such thing as a bad idea because that bad idea yeah. can spark a really brilliant idea. Yeah, so once you feel in a safe space where you go, lads, right, look, here's a riff. What do you think? No, that's a pile of shite. But actually, if you just set it up that let's stop with the looks and let's just say, you know, and I'm not mad about that. Mm. What about and, you know, set space for it and, and even maybe do it in a because I just think that the joy that comes from being creative yeah. is just one of the greatest joys on the planet. And to deprive yourself of that, whether it's that you only end up creating it for yourselves and it never yeah. sees the light of day, it, that's irrelevant. It's the joy that comes from even trying, you know, and actually the more you do it, I mean, it's going to be the same as with absolutely everything. You'll be rusty. Yeah. Um, but the more you do it, the easier it will get. And then actually there's a fab thing in your brain. It's called the default mode network, where when you're not actively focusing on something, when you're not actively, say, trying to compose yeah. or actively, try, you know, cooking a dinner or doing anything where you're really just, I suppose the closest way you can describe it is when you're maybe daydreaming yeah. where your brain is just sort of idling. There's a complete change in the electrical activity in your brain. In some areas, your brain become more active than if you're actively doing something, which seems counterintuitive. And actually what we, the royal we of neuroscientists, et cetera, I think is actually happening there is that actually that's where creativity, insight and ideas lie. So we don't give enough credit or enough freedom to our brain to just produce. Okay. We're always doing, we always think that we have the answer, but how many times has lyrics or, you know, a riff or whatever come to you somewhere mad, yeah. you know, every day in the supermarket yeah. every day. Exactly. Every day. So that's because that information is all in your head, all the music you have ever taken in, all that is in there. And if you give your brain space to idle, mm. it can make little connections. And then maybe tomorrow morning you might go, Ooh, yeah. <laughs> you know, here's an idea. And that's why sleep is really important as yeah. well. The same thing sort of happens with sleep. And I just think we're so busy and so active that we don't and also we believe that we, whoever we is, our sense of self is the controller, but actually your brain is. And if we trust it more, that can really happen. I'm really excited. I hope now you go start. I'd say I'm more, the guitar lessons are part of that uh, because I never learned guitar and I really have to be in a room with somebody. I have to either sing a piece to them and get them to play guitar back to me of it, or they play a piece of guitar and I write over it, but I'm not able to do it on my own. So, so I But really that's collaboration. Yeah, because I think that's another thing related to lockdown. And that's not just through music. Ideas come. Yeah. We're social creatures. Yeah. And that's how we evolved into amazing things. That's where the ideas came from. You know, someone bounces something off someone else. So that's kind of very normal. And I'm a bit like that in terms of I work alone, but I need examples. I know that sounds really weird, but I need to read over their stuff or look at, that, you know, and then that sparks my mm kind of creativity or gets my way into something. So other people are extremely uh, important. We really do kind of need other people. That song comes to mind. You're probably old enough to remember it as well. Frankie, people who need people are the luckiest yes. people in the world. It was dear Frankie. <laughs> yes. When I had that, I'm straight back sitting at the kitchen table for my lunch from school. Wondering what the bloody hell is going on. <laughs> <laughs> anyway so going back right obviously music is your life it is your yeah. oh i remember now you see i lost my train of thought earlier yeah when i was talking about the kids and getting them to find something they love and do it which you obviously found that it was only a few years ago that i actually discovered that that is a japanese concept called ikigai and it's their kind of there's we've no word that parallels to it the closest that you get to it is the reason you would jump out of bed in the morning yeah. And what they say is it's like a Venn diagram with circles. And so it's where these circles meet, doing something that you love, something that the world needs and finding a way to be paid to do it. Yeah, that's the key. <laughs> you know, that the, the being paid to do it. Yeah, is, therein lies the charm, all right. <laughs> therein lies the hard bit. That yes. is the hard bit. But the other stuff gives you more joy, actually, though, yeah. ultimately. Once you have enough food, and then I would rather be able to do the things that give me joy and not be able to yeah. buy something. And that's easy to say when you can put food in your mouth yeah. and have a roof over your head. But thankfully, I'm old enough now that I've paid for the roof over my head. <laughs> that's one of the advantages of starting younger. Um, so obviously, 
obviously then you have this career and despite what virgin you know where you felt you were going to be dropped but then there does come that point as you said where you're starting to sort of sidestep away and having mm. to take other careers was that a very challenging moment in your life or was it just something that sort of happened gradually or how did you cope and kind of get through that and create essentially another career as yeah, well it was very challenging um and i was think I, I feel for every band uh, because it's it's a very harsh business and i think sometimes going into it people aren't really cognizant of what they're facing into it's funny i'm listening to a book on the beatles at the moment and as the beatles are are signing their deals they're already making plans for it ending you know um yeah paul is signing a kind of another kind of deal with the record company has to signing in case the beatles don't make it you know, he's already, and the two of them are writing songs for other people because they think if we get a year or two out of this, we'll do well. And they've looked at all of their idols, the, the Frankie Ifields and, and Richie Valens and all these people, and they didn't have long careers. Now, some of them died in plane crashes, but the ones yeah. that didn't die had very short careers, you know. And yeah. I think that little thing of the music moving away from you is a harsh lesson. And it's not an easy lesson. There's no way to sugarcoat it. And I have to tell you a little story, which is true, uh, which really made that point. <laughs> very beautifully, very painfully for us. Uh, 1994. Uh, Your memory just amazes me, by the way, actually. We can talk about that later. Go on, 1994. Well, uh, I'm writing a little bit about this at the moment, so I'm reflecting, I'm thinking back on it. Uh, 1994, it's about two years after our peak. You know, so kind of from 90 to 92, we were definitely the flavor of the month in Ireland. 91 was parachute, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And, and that, the, that's the year my that's the year my youngest son was born. So I was in a really oh, right, different perfect. place. Yes. <laughs> um, that continued on to 92 and we were still with Verge and it was getting tougher and stuff. And then we released an album that no one liked. And, and then 94, I wasn't aware of it, but it was moving away from us. And then we were invited to appear in the Phoenix Park with the Irish football team coming home. Oh. Yeah. Wow. So Ray has no interest in football, but I said, we have to, I have to see, I have to shake Ray, oh, you know, who put the ball in the English net? Who put the ball in England net? I'm, I'm <laughs> shake his hand, Ray. I'm shaking his hand, right? That's going to happen. I so, met him too on one occasion. I as well. <laughs> so we went off to the Phoenix Park and uh, the audience is very young. And then they said, I'm afraid we can't mic you up. It's going to have to be acoustic. So it was an acoustic version of Aloha Hello, which is a big rock song. So that was bad. You know, so we went on and it went, it went down okay. Right? Now, prior to this, Dickie Rock had been on before us, right? Dying Spit death, on me, Dickie. Right? <laughs> so <laughs> I'm looking at the audience here, young enough to be his great grandchildren. So yes. this is bad, you know. So we go down averagely and then I'm standing beside Dickie and there are these five guys in orange jumpsuits warming up, right? Now, yeah. today that's synonymous with executions in the desert, but then it wasn't. And I'm going, who are they? Right. So they go on stage. Place goes ballistic. Right. They are boys on. They've yeah. only ever appeared once, two nights previously on the Late Late Show, you know, and now they are audience going do lally. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. And yeah. 
Dickie Rock looks at me and says, I think we're in trouble here, Tom. <laughs> and I thought, wow, if ever there was a truer word spoken. <laughs> and that is it. And you got that sense. We were going off and doing these tours in America. And every time you got back, boys and were bigger. <laughs> it was just as simple. Well, I, I actually am feeling that sinking feeling in my yeah. stomach now. I yeah. really am. I mean, I, I used to be an actor because my empathy levels are yeah. here. You it, know? It's rejection. Um, it's oh the same thing. God. It's rejection. Yeah. Being rejected. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the crowds yeah. are getting oh. smaller. You know, and, and that's oh. palpable. I remember we, we did National Stadium three times. First two times sold out. Third time not sold out. Right. And you're looking at the empty seats at the back, and you're just going, oh, Christ. You know? And it's terrible because we are primed to the negative. Instead yeah. of focusing on the ones who are still here, core fans yeah. and thinking, you're here, glad you're here, let's yeah. really do it for you. You're going, who's not here? And that's part of the human condition, you know? And, and it's funny, you were talking about reading that book on Audible. I'm glad you've moved on from Stephen Fry uh, Took a while. Sherlock Holmes. I was going to ask you about that because I read that, folks, that he'd taken up Audible and decided to read, what, the 90 hours? Of- 96 hours, you know, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> she, you're practically married to Stephen Fry. The, 90, the 96 best hours of my life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But um, yeah, what you were saying where they were already planning for failure, you know, like for me, when I put it like my new book literally is only out this month, but I have been several months already planning my next book. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Because there has to be a next. And I struggled when I was an actor. I was a lot younger and I didn't, you know, maturity gives you a lot of tools that really do help you cope with these things. But as an actor, you know, your life is just up and down. At least as a musician, you can create your own music. But when you're an actor, you really are dependent on Absolutely. other people to employ yeah, you yeah. and it's a very disempowering profession it really is Neil Young said he said giving advice to a girl called Jewel once he said as long as you can fill one room full of people that like you you don't need a record company and I've lived by that and as, as we've right. gone on we can still fill rooms and yeah. we still have that it might be just tentative it might be just you know finger hanging on by your fingertips but it's worth its weight in gold and I think yeah. as an actor you probably don't have that No, you don't. You really, really don't. And um, the point I was getting to was also you would get work, you know, and it's all consuming, you know. Uh, Now, I did. I worked in kind of television. I preferred that to the live performance because actually I like the discovery. And that's why I ultimately left it and became a psychologist. I'm just interested in the human condition. Yeah. And so I was kind of interested in, you know, why would they do that and experiencing that? But I would get terrible downers then after something finished. And actually, that's how I ended up changing career because I was in Fair City and I had a very big role. And then it just ended. My character yeah. was murdered and I went, oh, I have to do something. Yeah. So there was no, no, no hope that I would ever, that. no coming back. No. The husband strangled her. And actually, they had to put a warning on it, you know, <laughs> before the show and open helplines. That's going back a good long time. She played a victim of domestic violence. But anyway, that's how I ended up going into university because I figured I'd have no work and I thought I'd do a night course and I ended Great up doing a full-time degree in psychology and ended up loving it and I kind of combine it now because I still do performance because I give talks and I explain and I make little animated films and so I'm actually combining it in a way that is much more controlled than being an actor but I was so aware of the downs and the depths that I would go into after the high of performing. And that's why I'm really interested that you feel chilled after. Oh, totally. That's why I had a couple of G&Ts last night. I gave two talks yesterday and I was also on the radio. And so by the end of it, I was Mm. wired. And so I had to go, no, no, no. I have to have a drink to kind of calm down, which is not very good. So I don't get that chill thing. It's really interesting. I think it's music. No, to be honest now, you're you're chilled and wired (laughs) Right. Especially after the gig, you're wired for the night. But on a kind yeah. of deeper level, you're just, you're very, you know, I don't know, you, you feel grounded and connected and like you and content yeah content be content content you're doing what you love yeah yeah yeah. so I kind of get that and so like that when my son became a musician I could start to see that happening to him and I said you have to have something in advance and I guess it's that thing so he started I'd say when you're doing this or when you're practicing for whatever even if it was exams have some project 
a little bit started so that the yeah. minute this finished, yeah. you can kind of go into that. And it's, yeah. it's a, it's a tool that I use myself Yeah, is to just do that because at least then all your eggs aren't in one basket and it's too risky for any of us who are prone to maybe, you yeah. know, feeling that despair or that loss that it's good to kind of spread mm. your wings. Music is very harsh. Music is very harsh. And I, I see it now from the other side, from radio, where, where sometimes I'd be shining a light on an artist and, and their lives go, you know, wonderfully well. And then they're releasing stuff that's not quite as good anymore. And you can see their lives going down again, you know. Yeah. And some of them will say to me years later, um, they think it was actually a curse that they got that little bit of success, you know, that they saw what they could do and now they can't do it anymore. And there's a lot of mental health issues in music. There really is. There isn't a lot of the arts. Yeah. I think part of it is, you know, you're very connected with feeling and you think about things and you know so that's always going to be at a risk of becoming rumination you know like really kind of going to and forgetting to live i also think for a lot of it it's relinquishing control sometimes a lot of what happens we can see it as outside our control absolutely but actually you do have control what's outside your control is the success you imagine for yourself as measured by others mm. in other words you know can i make the top 10 or can i become a multi-million selling artist yeah. or can i get that gig the real joy comes from the intrinsic joy mm. which is your no, natural affinity with music and making it the problem comes when you then confuse that or dilute that with the end goal instead yeah. of the doing. And it's a hard balance to find. And I hard. do think and maturity helps. Yeah, I found it was like a juggling act. And um, you were very aware that there were things you couldn't control. Like, for instance, when we came back from a three-month tour in America, which we were wrecked after, we came back to find that Parachute hadn't been released in, in England. You know, and, Oh, yes, and they tell now, us about that. that. I mean, that's now just going a to timing do issue. Parachute, they weren't going to do a video. And... So when you're three months on a tour bus, you know, that's hard work. And then you get back and find this thing that was really important isn't happening. You know, and then meanwhile, in America, there's something else going on, you know, in a different direction. You just you did really get a sense of there were too many little holes. You had to try and stick your finger into this coming manager. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, you know, that's where an acceptance sounds like such a cliched thing to say. But when things are out of your control, the only response is to accept yeah. and look somewhere else. Yeah. And I mean, I use an analogy. I did a little podcast on it there a while ago about, you know, the closing doors. I had drawn knuckles from trying to bang down doors that closed in my face. Yeah. I tried to pry them open. I did everything. And, you know, people around me suffered because I did that. Yeah because I was so focused and it's really only with maturity that you realize that I personally think that the louder a door slams in your face, the draft is more likely to have created several other doors to open. You just need to turn around and have a look. at. Hard to see though, isn't it? It is hard to see, but it is something that I really, really do live my life by now. You know, I am much more accepting of things that don't work out, whereas I would have thrown dishes and plates and broken stuff. Like, I mean, I really didn't cope very well when things didn't go as planned. And I have learned that actually sometimes what you planned is nowhere near as good as what actually can happen. But it is. I have to say, kind of radio kind of did that, you know, because um, when it was coming to an end, it had gone through my mind because uh, I did all the, all the interviews for the band when we were touring in England or, or America. It was just the singer was pushed forward. So I was in and out of radio studios and I was kind of... And you're a bit of a talker, let's be fair. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was watching people in the studios and thinking, oh, I could do that. You know, I like this. I think I could do that. Yeah. And then uh, it was a friend of mine making his speech at his wedding, Ken Binley, um, said, Tom will go into radio. And I was thinking, where is this coming from? Where did he, you know, and I remember thinking, he's right though, I will go into radio. And then I asked, um, we came back from this tour of Warren Zevon, which is, a, uh, that's a day out of my life to tell you about that. You know, that could be a book in its own. Three- uh, and I do want to say you are, can, can we say you are writing a book? Yeah, I am. Can yeah. we say that publicly? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I've reached, my, in the book, I've reached my first ever gig. <laughs> and how long have you been writing it? <laughs> I must be about six months at it now, you know, okay. or a year. no, probably a year. How long were we in lockdown? A year. Yeah, a year. Wow. I wrote my last book during lockdown. I'll get faster. 
I guarantee you. I had deadlines, though. You know what I mean? I write nonfiction. So literally, I was told yeah. December and we wanted on the 30th of April. So like, it's oh, very different wow. anyway. Very impressive. Well, it was a bit tough at the first with lockdown because I wanted to be like everybody else. Just, you know, when we first went into lockdown going, <gasps> what's going on? You know, and just but trying to get my brain to focus on actually writing was a bit challenging. But I do want you to tell, you know, just about timing, just to pick out one of those things that you had no control over. If you just tell people why it was that Parachute did not get released in the UK, it was absolutely everybody loved the song. It was just circumstances. Yeah, the Gulf War. I know this sounds crazy, but the Gulf War happened. Uh, We were playing the town and country club, a sold out gig in London. There's no nicer thing in the world. And everything was going well in my life. It was just a beautiful moment. And there in the front cover of one of the papers was um, Iraq invades Kuwait. You're not going to think this is going to have implications for you. But the BBC, once it started to escalate, they banned everything to do with anything that could have a war feeling to it. So Massive Attack um, had to change their name. This became known as Massive Attack. know that. Yeah. Um, wow. And loads of songs, any song that had the least kind of military connotation to it, was either banned or simply dropped. Now, I think Parachute yeah. was more simply dropped than banned. I suppose it's like what happened to the Corona beer and, and yeah, <laughs> exactly, the Coronas, yeah. Yeah. you know? Um, so that was it. You know, it, it did really well here. And then they just never re... Did they release it then again later? Or? No, the head of A&R was, was the man who had a problem with it, you know, and even then even though the album was out and, and the song was a hit here, he still was sticking to his guns and saying, you guys were perceived as a rock band and this is changing people's perception of that. And that's not good. It's harder for us to market. So he wasn't enthusiastic about giving it any help at all. Wow. And then we were under pressure straight away to do the next album. So there was no great, you know. But the song itself just took on a life of its own. Oh, and, a life and, of its and, own. I can't believe it. It's one of those songs that keeps on giving, I think. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, it's <laughs> incredible. Guys, it's brilliant. And we're so lucky to have it, you know. Yeah, yeah. But just think you could create another one. You could. And I have some of my story. I had a great interview with um, Christy Moore in his car one day uh, up in a car park. He didn't want to come to my house and he didn't want me to go to his house. He said, we'll talk in the car. So I know. So I interviewed him in the car and at the end we were talking about just bands in general. And then he was saying, would you not write any more songs? And I said, oh, you know, what if they're crap? And he said, what if they're good? <laughs> what if they're good? That's been in my mind ever since, you know. Yeah, so- no, I, it's just switching it up. The brain, you know, your unthinking part of the brain, your unconscious part of the brain is full of biases. But one of those is a bias towards negatives because. Yeah. To fail to notice a negative could result in pain or death or whatever. Yeah. To fail to notice a positive is just a missed opportunity. But yeah. from your brain's perspective, it's not life-threatening or it's not going to cause any pain or harm to you. So you have to work hard to override that negative bias. Right. It's important to listen to it when it's relevant, but in this instance, it's not relevant. Well, it is relevant, I suppose, in that it could be painful for you to discover you can't write yeah, a great song again. That yeah. could be painful, yeah. but you just got to weigh up. Well, hold on. Can I cope with that pain? Yeah, you know yeah. what? I can. I've coped with much yeah. worse things in yeah. recent years. And we've written some off the rubbish before, so I can easily write some more. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, when it comes to some of these things, it's all about, you know, there's no accounting for taste or perspective. Exactly. What's one man's rubbish is another one's yes. delight, you know? <laughs> I hope that you enjoyed listening to that episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. If you've never listened to the Something Happens song Parachute, just go do it now. Find it on YouTube. It is impossible not to feel good listening to it. Tune in next week when we chat about Tom's brush with death and his post-traumatic stress following life-saving heart surgery. My name is Sabina Brennan and you have been listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.